Good afternoon, family. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. This is a joy to be gathered together again on this Lord's Day. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a joy to be here uh, to, to worship our risen and ruling Savior. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, today we're going to be continuing in our sermon series through our statement of faith called What We Believe Together. Last time when we were together in this study, we looked at there being only one true and living God. And today we're going to be looking at how this one true and living God has also revealed himself as triune. All right. So we're going to be thinking about and looking at the Bible's teaching about the Trinity. Before we dive in, let me pray for us again. Father in heaven, we thank you again for this opportunity to worship you. God, we thank you uh, that you are triune, that you are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, one God, one essence, three distinct persons unify in the work of salvation. And so God, I pray uh, as we yeah, unfold your scriptures teaching about how you've revealed yourself. God, I pray that it would yeah, refresh us and encourage us this afternoon. Pray that you would teach us from your word. Lord, that we would see you rightly and glorious and highly lifted up. God, I pray that I would hide behind you, uh, that you would increase and that I would decrease, and that you would get all of the glory in what's said now in the preaching. Be pleased, Lord. Be magnified. And may your word do the work in all of our hearts in every way you see fit. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So if you're taking notes, family, have three points for y'all this afternoon. Three points, and then I'm out your way as we think about God being triune. Number one, distinct in persons. Distinct in persons. And you'll see those on the screen. Number two, one in essence. One in essence. And then lastly, number three, unified in the work of salvation unified in the work of salvation. Let's look at the first one together, distinct in persons. So Christians believe that there is only one God. That's what Christians, that's what we as Christians believe. We looked at this a bit the last time we were together. So I won't go into in depth in that this afternoon, but would encourage you to check out the sermon uh, where we talked about or thought about there being only one God. But I would show you from scripture uh, what God teaches here surrounding him being one. So uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Jesus affirming this when one of the religious leaders, leaders asked him a question about which commandment is the most important, he says in the Gospel of Mark, he says, the most important is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he goes on and he says, this is, yeah, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and soul, right? And then the second is like it, right? That you should love your neighbor as yourself. So Christians believe that there is one God because this is how God has revealed himself from his word, right? But Christians also believe that this one God has revealed himself in three distinct persons. Or, another way to put it, 
God is three in one. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Trinity was, was taught and coined by one of the early church fathers, Tertullian, in the early church. But this doctrine of the Trinity is firstly taught throughout the Bible. So Tertullian got this from God's word, right? That this doctrine of God being triune is first in the scripture. So let's, let's start with one of those main passages where this is taught here. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. Here's what it reads. It says, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So the context of this passage is that John the Baptist is fulfilling what is prophesied in the Old Testament concerning him and the coming Messiah. That he would, John would, be the forerunner, the one who would prepare the way for the Messiah. And so he's doing just that. He's by baptizing those who had come to him of repentance for forgiveness of sins in the Jordan River. But as he's doing that, he's telling them, he's putting this on front street that he is not the one. He is not the one who has come, but that there is someone greater who is to come. The one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is what John says, right? So we know that he was referring to Jesus, the promised Messiah who indeed did come. This Jesus comes to be baptized by John. Now, Jesus wasn't being baptized for repentance of forgiveness of sins like those who came to John because Jesus had no sins for which he had to be baptized for repentance of, right? Because he's God. He had no sins. He's perfect. But what Jesus was doing in that moment was that he was modeling what he would command all Christians to do after. Right? He was modeling what all Christians should do, could do, and are commanded to do, and that being being baptized, to identify with his death and resurrection in a symbolic sense. <clears throat> so if you're here and you're a Christian and you've never been baptized as a believer, or you know others who are Christians who haven't been baptized as believers, I would want to encourage you, I would want to encourage them, you encourage them to obey Jesus' command here, right? To obey Jesus' command to be baptized as he modeled here in Matthew chapter 3, but then what he also commands us to do in Matthew 28, 19. Here's what it reads. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus here commanding all Christians. So he models this earlier in the gospel where I just read. And then he also commands this of all Christians, right? 
So Jesus is baptized in Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. And we see here in that passage that all three persons of the Trinity are clearly in the text, right? You see Jesus, the son being baptized. You see the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. And then you see the voice from heaven, the father speaking from heaven in affirmation that this is Jesus. This is my beloved son. This is my son, God's son, which also affirms his deity, right? Which we'll look at in just a bit in the second point, a bit more. But this affirming who Jesus was and is. Something to note here about the father's affirmation of his son here is that Jesus hadn't performed any miracles yet. Right? You've heard me talk about this before. He hadn't performed any miracles yet. He hadn't done a single work yet. Yet the father affirmed him as his son. This is framed for us as Christians who are sons and daughters. No, we're not the son of God, but through the son of God and by the spirit, we have been adopted into God's family and he has made us his children. Amen. He's made us sons and daughters. This isn't on the basis of anything that you and I did or could have done. Right. But all on the basis of what Jesus has done. All on what he has done for us. And so that should free us. As we think about, yeah, as we're looking for approval, as we're searching for approval, we've already been approved by God. That in Christ, he has received us and he has affirmed us. In the same way he would affirm his son, he has affirmed us as his sons and daughters. So you don't have to come to God trying to prove yourself to him. You don't have to come to God trying to clean yourself up before him. No, he... He accepts you as who you are in him, as Christ has yeah, saved you in him. And he, he loves you. He affirms you now and will continue to affirm you. That's something to be thankful for. That's something to thank God for this afternoon. We don't have to run around searching for approval from anybody or anything. But we have been approved by God. Amen. In Matthew 3, 16 through 17, we also see that there are three distinct persons, right? Three distinct persons in the Godhead mentioned, not three separate gods. No, that would be polytheism, which we uh, denounce or we don't affirm, which is a belief that there is more than one God. Christians are monotheists or we affirm monotheism which is a belief that there is only one God, right? We see this distinctness within the Godhead in other places throughout the Bible as well. We just looked at this, but I want to uh, encourage us to look here again, Matthew 28, 19, where our Lord Jesus commissions and commands us to go and make disciples. He tells us to baptize those disciples in the name of the triune God, Right? So, again, Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Or in Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6, where it reads, there is one body and one spirit, 
just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So Paul here, in this passage here in Ephesians 4, is speaking to there being one God, but distinct in persons. Persons being three distinct persons is important on a few levels, as we're going to see in our next two points. Let me express another one real quick, another crucial one, why this is important to, to see the distinctness between the, the Godhead, the three persons in the Godhead. But this is how God has revealed himself. This is how God has revealed himself through his word and how he has revealed himself is how he wants to be known and worshipped. So we can't acknowledge one person in the Trinity and disregard the other two. To do that would then to be disregarding God himself and how he's revealed himself in his word. This is crucial. This is how God has revealed himself and how he desires for us to worship him. So that's number one, distinct in persons. But number two, he's one in essence. He's one in essence. So each person in the Trinity is God. This is what I mean by one in essence, or a couple of other ways to put it, is one being. He's one being or one in nature, right? So one essence, one being, one in nature. All this means is, is that each person in the Trinity is God. That God reveals this to be true of himself in eternity past, before the foundations of the world. This is how he revealed himself, right? So think about Genesis 1, 1 through 2. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Again, we looked at this a few weeks ago in the previous sermon, but I want to point your attention to the progression again here in this verse, in verse 1, the progression, right? It says, first, in the beginning. Then God created the heavens and the earth. Meaning, before, in the beginning, there was nothing but God. He existed before anything and everything, but that everything and anything came from this God. So this is, yeah, showing who he is showing that he is the one true God and that he is the creator of everyone and everything. So we see here that God the Father created the heavens and the earth, right? And then we see in verse 2 that the Holy Spirit is hovering over the face of the waters, right? So that's two persons of the Trinity mentioned right here in this text, which then affirms that no one can be in the beginning but God. Only God can be in the beginning because he is the beginning and the end, right? And only God can be in the presence of God. We also know that the son was here too. So the Hebrew word in the beginning in Genesis 1 can be translated through the son God created the heavens and the earth. We know this to be true from other places in scripture, right? 
So think with me for a few examples. John 1, 1 through 2 says, in the beginning was the word. So you see there the apostle John uses the same language, the same phrase in Genesis 1 to kick off his book, right? It says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John 1, 1 through 2. Or another passage, Colossians 1, 15 through 16, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Some months back, as I was preparing to, to meet with uh, some Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, I was just studying and kind of refreshing my memory on what they believe and et cetera, et cetera, and um, came across why well, I had already knew about it, but I, I looked back at it again and just was kind of looking over some material by Preston Perry, uh, who is a faithful brother, as you guys know, and an apologist. Uh, he provided some, some helpful uh, outlooks and truths surrounding what Jehovah's Witnesses believe, right? And how to refute them uh, with the truth of God's word. So Jehovah's Witnesses try to use those two passages that I just read uh, to deny the deity of Christ, right? You may have engaged with some of them and have had conversations where they've used those two passages to deny the deity of Christ. In John chapter 1, what they do there is that they add to God's word, which is something that we are not supposed to do, right? They add to God's word by adding the letter A at the end of verse 1 to read, and the word was a God, right? Therefore, denying the deity of Christ, denying that Jesus is God. We as Christians, uh, we would see their translation of the Bible not to be a faithful translation of the Bible, right? We would see that to be an incorrect translation of the Bible. In John 1, 1 through 2, we see the word was in the beginning, that the word was with God, and that the word is God. Verse 2 shows that this word is personified, that he is a person. And then in verse 3, we also see that everything was made through this person, right? Then you drop down to John 1, verse 14, we learn that the word becomes flesh, referring to the incarnation of Christ, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does it say? It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So what we see in these passages is that these passages teach clearly that Jesus is God. And they show that he was in the beginning with God. Therefore, showing the distinction between God the Father and God the Son. Then in the Colossians passage, what Jehovah's Witnesses try to do there is that they, they use that, that phrase there where it says firstborn of all creation to say that God created Jesus. That Jesus is a created being, right? that he's the firstborn of all creation. If you look at the Greek word 
for firstborn, it's prototokos, right? And that prototokos, that's P-R-O-T-O-T-O-K-O-S. If you want to look that up and search that yourselves. But it's prototokos, which means preeminence over people, a country, or a city, right? Doesn't mean firstborn as in a physical birth, as they would try to interpret it, or that Jesus was a created being. If that was the case, God wouldn't have used the same word, prototokos, in referring to King David in Psalm 89, 27. Here's what it says. It says, and I will make him, David, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. That's Psalm 89, 27. We know that David was not the firstborn of all kings. He wasn't the firstborn of all kings. He was instead prototokos, preeminent over all the other kings. And it's the same with Jesus, that he is preeminent over all things, which shows, which proves he is deity, that he is God. So the father and the son are of the same essence, the same nature. The Holy Spirit is as well. The Holy Spirit is also God. We saw this in the Genesis 1 passage, but in Luke, or excuse me, in the book of Acts, Luke makes this more clear. So Acts 5, 1 through 6, he says, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have Contrive this deed in your heart. You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. So we see this in verse 3, right? One of many examples. Peter said to Ananias that he lied to the Holy Spirit, right? And at the end of verse Four, he says, Ananias didn't lie to man, but he lied to God, equating the Holy Spirit with God because he is indeed God. All three persons of the Trinity, one essence, one being, one nature, three distinct persons. So each person's in the Trinity, distinct but of one essence. Lastly, number three, unify in the work of salvation. Unified in the work of salvation. All three persons of the Trinity are in unity with one another. Perfect unity, perfect harmony. We see this in a lot of places of scripture, but here's one place where their unity is beautifully on display. Look with me to John chapter 16, verses 12 through 15. If you want to turn there, I'll write that down. Here's what it says. So John 16, 12 through 15, it says, this is Jesus. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. 
he will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So that's John 16, 12 through 15. So what we see here is that the Spirit will come, right? The promised Holy Spirit, the comforter that Jesus promised will come, will come, did come. And that he won't speak on his own authority, right? He will only speak the things that he hears and convey the things that he hears and that he will glorify Jesus. And that we also see here that all that the Father has is Jesus's, right? Do you see this perfect unity on display? There's no complaining amongst the persons in the Trinity on who gets to do what or who gets to have what. No arguing, no ego tripping, just perfect harmony in the Godhead Unity amongst the three persons in the Godhead. They model the same type of unity God desires to be on display within his church, right? Now, in his church, or churches, it will be imperfect among us, right? But it's something we should continually strive for in all things as a church. Striving for unity. Paul even tells us to be eager to maintain this unity in Ephesians 4.3. Right. So CACC family, let nothing rival or come between the unity we have as a church. Members, all of us, may we be unity police. Right. May we be unity police amongst our congregation, lovingly correcting and pointing out where someone or something may try to cause disunity. May we, just like the Trinity, who displays unity, perfect unity, seek to uphold that same type of unity in the local church. But this unity in the Godhead is also evident in the work of salvation, right? I love how one description describes this work. It, it's, and you may have heard this before, but it's God the Father initiates and plans, God the Son executes the plans, and God the Holy Spirit applies the plans to the believers. And this is exactly what we see in the tenets of the gospel, right? Through the gospel story, the good news of God, what Christ has done, we see that God in Genesis 1 through 2 creates everyone and everything. There's, there, it's perfect, perfect harmony, peace. He, at the end of creating everything and everyone, he says, this is very good. It's very good. We know that man sins against God. So the, our, our first parents sins against God. They sin against God. And because of their sin, we inherited their sin. And we also inherited their judgment due to sinners. Right? And that judgment being death in hell, where we will be eternally separated from God. Right? But that in that moment, God initiates a plan. Genesis 3.15. He initiates a saving plan, right? The promised seed of the woman who would yeah, crush the head of the serpent. But this seed would get a little boo-boo, right? Get a little bruise. But he would crush the head of the serpent, right? So God there initiates the plan of salvation. Jesus comes, God's son, 
comes and fulfills and executes this plan in his perfect sinless life, death and resurrection in our place, right? Jesus comes and he bridges the gap where we were separated from God because of our sin. Jesus comes and he brings harmony, he brings peace, he brings reconciliation, he brings salvation, right? For all who turn from their sin and turn to him, which is the response, right? That the Holy Spirit grants the gift of repentance and faith. Holy Spirit is the one who grants these gifts. These are gifts that God grants in the Holy Spirit that are repentance and trust in the Son. Therefore, applying these plans to those who believe. So we see that this is clear throughout the story of the gospel, right? That God the Father initiates and plans, God the Son executes the plans, God the Holy Spirit applies these plans to those who believe. So this is the gospel, right, that we hold out every week, that we convey every week here, that all would turn from sin and turn to this God by faith, by repentance in him for the forgiveness and salvation of their souls, right? And for the Christians here, this is the gospel we hold out to us week in and week out because we as Christians need the gospel daily, right? And God is still showing off his unified work within the Trinity in our lives, in the work of salvation. So here's, here's how he's doing that, right? When we remember the gospel, we're reminded that this was the Father's plan. We're reminded of the Father's love for us, right? To then send his son, Jesus, to fulfill those plans and that the Holy Spirit continues to apply these plans in our lives through doing what? Convicting us of sin, sanctifying us, and making us more like Jesus. Every time we open up, every time we crack open the scriptures, giving us understanding of God's word, bringing to remembrance all that God has said, or will say, that he said through his word, and so forth and so forth. So the Trinitarian God in the work of salvation is continuously working that out in our lives as Christians. It's a really beautiful thing. It's, it's like an example. It's like three players in, let's say there were three players in figure skating, right? Graciously gliding across the ice in unison, working together in perfect harmony for the same goal, moving in the same direction with the same purpose in mind. This is how the Trinitarian God works as a unified front in our salvation and for those who would believe. This is how God has revealed himself. One God, three distinct persons, one essence, unified in the work of salvation. It's a beautiful doctrine. It's a wonderful doctrine. Let's pray.
God, we thank you again this afternoon. Oh, Trinitarian God, we praise you for your glory, for your wonder, for your gloriousness. We are in awe of you. Father, we thank you for being God. We thank you for creating everyone and everything. We thank you that in our sin, you didn't leave us in our sin, but you initiated a plan to save humanity. We thank you for sending your son. We thank the Lord Jesus for coming and for living a perfect sinless life that none of us could ever live and dying the death that we all surely, de- yeah, we all surely deserved. He was buried in the grave. On the third day, raised from the dead with all power and dominion. Offering salvation to all who would turn from sin and turn to him by faith. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are the one who grants these gifts. The gifts of repentance and faith. We praise you, God, that you have done that within this body. We praise you that you are continuously doing that throughout other gospel-preaching churches all over the world, throughout evangelistic opportunities within our church and other gospel-preaching churches, applying these works, applying these gifts to all who believe. And we thank you, oh God, that you didn't stop there. Holy Spirit, that you continue to apply these truths by conforming us more and more into the image of Christ, that you are sanctifying us as believers, making us more like Jesus, that we might look more like him, that we might live more like him, and that we might rely upon him for everything. That you continue to cleanse us from our sin, that you convict us of our sin, that you continue to reveal your truth to us as we open up your word that you, oh God, gives us, grants us interpretation. That you teach us, that you show us from your word more of Jesus and how to live like him. You are wonderful, God. You are an amazing God, and we bless your holy name this afternoon. We honor you and praise you. Our Trinitarian God, would you continue to be pleased with us as we continue on in our time, as we go from here, in Jesus' name, amen, amen.